I want to thank the brethren who took over last time so that I could go with my family to Albuquerque uh, to support the kids there. And I uh, appreciate you doing that, and it's good to be back. I, um, When you look at, uh, by the time you, you look at 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, you see that um, Paul is addressing division that's happening at Corinth. And he spends a lot of time speaking specifically about division. And so as we look at this fourth chapter and we start to read it, I want us to think about how much we really, really disregard trash and garbage and things like that. Just to give us a a true mindset uh, of what's going on with Paul. Uh, We don't think a lot about trash. In older times, people would take their trash, they would burn it, they would bury the ashes and the and the refuse that came from it. And now we we just kind of take it for granted. We take it out to the trash can, we take it out to the curb, and we don't really like to touch it. <laughs> we don't like to be near it, uh, and we are content to let others deal with it. And we even pay them to deal with it. If we're going to go out and go play or go have some fun or something, we're not going to go to the dump to do that. Um, we don't uh, tend to think of that as the the place that we would like to be around in. We are, and rightfully so. We equate that with with disease and 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 malodor and and just all kinds of terrible things. And so it should be. And we don't even leave trash in our house at all. Uh, you know, if we can help it, you go in and it smells really, really bad, you know, you've left the trash there too long. And so as we read 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, it it's probably striking to us, and it should be striking to us, and it would have been striking to the people to whom it was written, because, you know, Paul likens himself, and he calls himself scum, uh, refuse, and he says that's exactly... Uh, what he he is, and he makes it the center of his admonition against division, or at least he uses it as the uh, the springboard from which to jump into this final uh, attack on this division that's going on among his brethren at Corinth, and and so when we read this, I think we're going to be very surprised, but we should also really take into our hearts what he is actually saying about the way that he feels and the way that he even considers himself, probably, in many ways. And so let's go ahead and read uh, that 1 Corinthians 4th chapter. Let's go ahead and read those first six verses. Paul has been speaking again and again about how they have been divided. And it seems that one of the most... (coughs) Uh, profound effects on Paul for being upset about the division that's happening in Corinth is that they're choosing men to be divided with. They are, they're saying, you know, a part of the Corinthian brethren were, were clicking together. They were creating their own little group, uh, because they wanted to say they were of Apollos. They liked Apollos better. And Apollos, of course, we know is an eloquent speaker and probably just a wonderful man. And so they were aligning themselves with him. And then there were others at, at Corinth aligning themselves with Paul. Because who wouldn't be impressed by the letters? Paul probably wasn't a great speaker or anything. But they were impressed by the letters that they read, of course, and the great authority that he exercises. And so they aligned themselves with him. And Paul's trying to tell them, Apollos and I are not any different. 
We are, we are speaking the same word. We are speaking the same gospel. We are preaching the same Jesus Christ. But you're dividing because you're human. And because you're acting in a very natural way. And so when we read this, this is where Paul is still coming from. And he says to them, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light all the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. Isn't that a beautiful message? Look again carefully at what he says there. Carefully. He says, look, the mysteries of God have been revealed. There, there is no need for anybody to be regarded as better than someone else. Not Apollos, not me, not anyone. The Word of God has been revealed. It applies to each and every one of us. If we execute it faithfully, we're on even ground. And it doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, you know, how we live, whatever it is, except that 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 life cannot be a sinful life. If we are away from that sinful life and we are professing the Word of God, then we're equals. What a beautiful balancing testimony that is. And so he's, he's attacking their division that's going on. And he says nothing else needs to be regarded. And he says the key then is that faithful execution of what's been revealed. So if somebody is criticizing otherwise, they're of no consequence to Paul. Oh, you can say that I'm not speaking the word of God, but if I am speaking the word of God... It's of no consequence. Because you saying that I'm not speaking the word of God doesn't mean I'm not. That's all there is to it. And and that's what he's saying there. And that's what he's putting, putting together for us and for the Corinthians. The mysteries of God that are revealed, these are not some collection of learning so that uh that are that are assembled and provided by God so that we can determine one of us superior over somebody else. That's just not what it's there for. The messages, the mysteries of God have been revealed to unify, to offer one message for everyone to preach, everyone to live by, everyone to teach to one another, so that there can be one hope and one faith to all who will hear it. And not only that, but to all who will embrace what they hear. Because it is the testimony of God. Will there be naysayers? Of course there will be naysayers. There will be naysayers, brethren and friends, that look at what you say, and they will tell you, show me that in the Bible. 
and you will flip open the Bible and you will show them where it says it and they will still look at you and say, I don't think that's what that means. I don't think that's what that says. I don't... What you think it says or what you want it to say is of no consequence. That's a very tough position, isn't it? And Paul is in that position and he defends it beautifully by saying, I'm not just speaking what comes out of my head. This has been revealed. I'm not trying to twist what God has said into something that I want. It is simply as revealed as is written. Don't go beyond it. Certainly don't come short of it. I'm sure he implies by saying that. But this is the message. What a beautiful thing to say. Because judgment, unless it comes from God, is simply pointless judgment. And so we are also talking about here that what we are doing is not how we are acquitted. Now that is a powerful message from Paul, isn't it? Are you living a good life? Some of us would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I, you know, I'm a sinner, but, you know, I don't seek to sin. I don't look to sin. I'm not controlled by it. You know, there, there is something to me that makes me fight. You know, I, I have enough faith that I fight against unrighteousness and falsehood and, and anything that's contrary to the revealed will of God. And we can say that about ourselves. Does that make us righteous? Paul says no. That's an amazing testimony, isn't it? Paul says even that doesn't make us. Because uh, uh, acquitted before God. Because like Romans 3 and 23 says, what has, what's happened? All have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And so... We're not acquitted by either our righteousness or by what others judge about our righteousness. We're neither acquitted by either of those things. And that may seem to you and I to be a problem, but it's not really. I mean, this is, this is comforting. All we have to do is be worthy of it. Because see, a lot of times our personal doubt destroys us. And a lot of times, um, what other people say about us either destroys us or tends to qualify us. We live in that generation right now. Uh, we have one of the, the biggest um, criticisms, and I think it's a constructive criticism of this generation, is everybody needs to feel validated from outside. You know, if somebody gets into an argument or something, they're going to go on Facebook and see what their friends say, or they're going to, they're going to, you know, shoot out an Instagram, or they're going to, they're going to tweet something, right? We live in the in very dangerous times where all of our qualification and all of our understanding and everything that we think is supposed to be good has to come from the outside. We don't feel we can have any intrinsic worth at all. Now, of course, that can go too far too, can it? That can turn into pride and arrogance and smugness and all of that. That we, that is also a sin. But we understand the difference. We are not fools. We are created in the image of God. We know what the difference is between the two. We also know, and thankfully, that God will commend or condemn us and nobody else can. Just like nobody stands guiltless before God by virtue of the fact that they have oratory skills. Just like no one stands guiltless before God because they are superior writers like Paul was. 
Just because they do that. No one stands justified before God in spite of any of those things. Now, we have to ask ourselves the questions knowing that, or question ourselves and examine ourselves knowing that. Am I actually living life like I understand that? Am I actually uh, believing that? Because we will be rewarded, or we will be punished, but not by imperfect, uh, flawed people. We will be rewarded or punished by perfect, loving, just, omniscient God. That is who we will be rewarded or punished by. One would think that that would make a great difference in our lives, wouldn't it? Such confidence, such carefulness should be within us because of this. Oh, I can't get away with anything, but by the same token, I can't see myself as more than I am. You would think that that knowledge would change you, but it doesn't. <coughs> it's, uh, you know, Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And, um, and you know, I was thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. on that day. Couldn't help it. (laughs) It's in the newspapers. It's on the news. It's everywhere. And I remembered when he did something, he talked about something called the drum major instinct. I don't know if you've ever heard of any such thing. Uh, But he talked about that. As a matter of fact, it was one of the sermons. I don't know if it was titled that. I can't remember. I I wasn't there and I don't know. But um, he gave a sermon and he was talking about the drum major instinct. And they said it was interesting because this is one of the sermons he delivered very shortly before his death. And in that, he said something, and I I wish you would read the whole thing. There's a whole uh, written version of the uh, the sermon itself online, and it's it's great stuff. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's just, it's great stuff. The thing that hit me most profoundly is what he said about people in their lives. He said, I have seen a man who drove a $5,000 car, and he wasn't content with that. He needed a $10,000 car, you know, because he thought that $10,000 car was better than the $5,000 car. And he said, I've seen a man that has built a $30,000, $40,000 house, and not content with that because he believes that he needed a $75,000 house or a $100,000 house because that would be better than that $35,000. You know, and he, he says, I, I've known people that, that drop names. You know, I know so-and-so or I know so-and-so and I sit and I drink tea with so-and-so just to make themselves better, right? To make themselves believe that they are better, to make others believe that they are better. And he says all of these things, and you can hear the crowd yelling, Amen, make it plain. You know, you can hear them yelling out these phrases. And then all of a sudden he gets very quiet. You talk about an orator. You know, you want to learn oratory skills. <laughs> yeah, you should listen. Because he, he just does this amazing job. And he says, There comes a time the drum major instinct can become destructive. And it's just real quiet. You know, he talks about the drum major. He's out in the front. He's the leader. Everybody's looking at him. He wants to be seen. He needs to be seen, right? And that's what he's talking about. He doesn't say it's evil. And that's what's interesting to me. He doesn't count it as evil. He says it's dangerous when it's unharnessed. Very good with his words. If we don't harness it, it becomes dangerous, pernicious, instinct. 
And uh, it was interesting to me because I had a, a small debate with the kids in the class. Whenever uh, I reiterated this, this is something I always reiterate on that Monday when we're in school, or after we're in school. Uh, one of the things I reiterate anyway. Uh, and I say, you know, does anybody in here believe that you can choose what your instincts are? And hardly anybody raised their hands. And then you have that one kid that just raised their hand and goes, well, Mr. Wright, um, I mean, can you? Well, Martin Luther King believed you could. He is, he's highly respected. Uh, he was beloved by the generation that he served as a, as a, as a leading civil rights activist. And, and he said, it's a very dangerous, pernicious instinct. It can become that. So if something can become instinct, then that means that we can control it. Anybody disagree? And they all just looked at me. And I know what was going through their heads. Because I didn't tell them, I mean, wouldn't you say you're born certain ways? Don't we say that in this generation? We are born to do certain things and there is no way that we can escape doing them. Because we're born that way. Our instincts will move us that way. We cannot fight our instincts. Therefore, it is not wrong for us to do what is contrary to the revealed will of God because we are born that way. And they always give me that wry look in their eyes. And I always tell them, no, I'm good at this. I've been been here a long time. I know I can't come right out and say it, but I can make you think about it. (laughs) And I said, what do you think? There's a kid in that class that believes he is gay. He raises his hand. And I looked at him and I said, Yes, sir. <laughs> you have a question? And he goes, You know, he goes, I guess a, a murderer couldn't use that defense. And he said, So, and I looked at him and I said, Very good point. You know, I interrupted him. I said, Very good point. Someone who murders someone else can't say I was born that way. It's an instinct I cannot fight. I had to kill, right? They can't do that, right? And he says, I can't do it. He goes, So, I guess, and then he goes like this. Never mind. And I went, mm. Inside of my head, I'm going, Yes. Yes, this is the seed of thought that we have to plant. After the class, he walks up to me and he goes, you're, you're a minister, right? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he goes, I think I, I might want to talk to you about a few things. And I went, you may anytime you wish. Because I know the rule is if he brings it up, I get to talk about it. <laughs> if I bring it up, I get in all kinds of trouble, you know, and everybody gets mad at me. But if he brings it up, I go, he started it. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I wouldn't do he started it. But anyway, I know that that's the way it has to happen. So you have to be very careful. But this is very inspiring, isn't it? And he's right. It causes one's personality to become distorted. And he says you will end up day in and day out trying to deal with your ego problem. Preachers would get fired today for saying stuff like that. Can you imagine? That's why I love hearing these old guys preach back in the day. Even though he was a Baptist minister. I don't believe he understood the scriptures perfectly. But boy, he makes some powerful points, doesn't he? You look at that and you read that. And you see that. And he says, and he's talking about all these people. And my favorite one was, 
people really become sickening because they just sit up all the time talking about themselves. Do you know anybody in your life that talks about themselves all the time? It is sickening. Well, I do this and I do that. Well, what I would do if I were you. Well, I do, you know what? Just hush. You're not me. It doesn't matter what you would do because you and I, you're, you're, just like Paul said, your judgment is nothing to what I have to do. There's no way you can do this for me. There's no way you can do it instead of me. There's no way you can do it better or worse. <laughs> I mean, this is just, this is mine to carry and I have to carry it. And we often busy ourselves talking about ourselves, don't we? We use I a lot. And it's just, it's an indication. And this is just a beautiful example. This is an indication of unharnessed, destructive, pernicious, dangerous instinct that can be controlled. And see, this this is so important here. Because... Paul then says, this is about lost selfish pride. This is the key. Paul was hopeful that the Corinthians would see himself, would see Apollos, would see others like them the way they themselves see themselves. And certainly not in any way contrary to the Word of God. And so... Pride becomes a part of the problem. And so when we read there, in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6-12, through 12, let's look at that together. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your sake, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you be puffed up in favor one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we could share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. See, Paul is talking about himself and Apollos. He is, but not in that drum major instinct way, right? He's not making that mistake. Paul is telling the Corinthians to live as he and Apollos, but in comparison to what is written. That's a powerful lesson, isn't it? Yes, take me as an example. But if I fail against the Word of God, do not take me as an example. Rise above that. Do that more. Do that instead. But pride is a very tricky thing, isn't it? 
Pride's very tricky. It is destroying the brethren at Corinth here and it tends to destroy us. How do you see pride? How does it show itself? Well, just like we were talking about, someone's all puffed up, talk about themselves a lot of time. They gotta have attention. I gotta have the prettiest car because I want everybody to look at me in my car and go, ooh, that's the prettiest car I've ever seen. That's what I want. I want to be in the nicest house because I want people to walk in and go, ooh, this is the kind of house I would want to live in, but I don't have. Yes, that's right. You know, that's what we want that, right? These are the things we, we puff ourselves up. You know, I, I had one preacher tell me, and he's a, he was a friend of mine at one point, but he told me, he said, you know, I study 60 hours a week so that I can't be wrong. And I went, you can study 120 hours a week and still be wrong. You know, you know, it's not a matter of how much time you put into the, le- you know, reading the Bible. You can still come to the wrong conclusion because we're human, aren't we? We're human. We fail. We sin. This is the thing that we do. It's about how we deal with that, right? So, surely. But this is interesting because what we're talking about here, when he says, go beyond what is written... That just means we fail to make God, His will, and His glory right at the center of everything that we do. Have you ever heard the word, the phrase unscriptural? Somebody will say, you can't do that, that's unscriptural. (laughs) Now, I'm going to tell you, if you can't do something because it's unscriptural, there may not be a scripture for it. But there are things that you should not do that are sin that they don't have scriptures for specifically. That's an important thing to remember. The Bible doesn't just teach us rules and regulations. It teaches us how to think. It teaches us ways to live our lives. Ways to act and ways to react. If it had to follow every... Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that book. You couldn't fit the book in this room. Okay, so we have to understand God teaches us how to think and He expects us to think righteously. And to be able to, as Hebrews says, discern, practice our senses so that they can discern between good and evil, right? We have to be able to do that. And that's what Paul is talking about here because pride is very tricky. Uh, I'm sorry to go off here, I just thought of this too late and Jamie's going to kill me because I always think about this after I do the... The notes, and I'm so sorry, Jamie. <laughs> but uh, you have to go to Isaiah 64. And I do apologize because sometimes I think of something and I don't have time to put it up here. And it's totally unfair, but I just have to read it. And Isaiah 64 and verse 6, read this with me. The prophet says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isn't that beautiful? And sad? (laughs) And sobering? And inspiring? All at the same time. I could do all the good things in the world. If I have not God, Paul says, I'm like tinkling brass. That's the idea here. And he's saying the same thing. What's unscriptural is whenever God fails to be at the center of every action and thought. And I want to add something here. Pride is also exhibited in self-deprecation. Have you ever met somebody, not who talks about themselves, but 
tries to talk about how terrible life has been for them and how much they've overcome. Have you ever heard somebody that, I'm just a terrible, terrible, terrible person, uh, but God has saved me. You know, let's leave out I and just say, God has saved me. <laughs> let's leave ourselves out of it. Why do we have to have the story about ourselves? Why do we have to have uh, the testimony? Right? I love this. Modern false doctrine and, and religions, they all, are all about the testimony, right? Oh, go forward, brother, and give your testimony. The only testimony that anybody should be interested in is what's written right between the pages of this book. Now, is that rude? Somebody said, Joe, that's rude. i got a great story to tell. Keep it to yourself. You think he's got a great story to tell? I bet you he does. You think she's got a great story to tell? I bet you she does. Everybody's got a great story. To Get on your knees and pray to God about that story. But don't make yourself more than you are by giving a testimonial. Come on. Put God at the center of your life, at the center of your mind, at the center of your speech. See, we often say, oh, that's a very commendable trait. You were, you were born in the hood, right? You were born in the ghetto. You came out of that. You were a drug addict. You were a drunk. You're amazing. No, 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 no. That is not supposed to be the point. It's not supposed to be a focus on me. Remember, Paul said, I have hidden myself in Christ. Christ should be seen. That's difficult to do. Pride is a tricky sin, isn't it? We often commend people who can do this. Oh, they were so terrible. He was so terrible. She was so terrible. Now they're so good. We often forget that's just sin candy-coated. That's just pride candy-coated. It's ironic, isn't it? Why should our most inspiring messages come from the lives that other people lead? Because our judgments of righteous or unrighteousness should not come from what other people think. Isn't that just the opposite side of what Paul is saying here? Isn't it the same truth? Oh, I have such a great story to tell and people are going to want to hear it. I'm going to give you a little secret. Jesus Christ's story is better. Ultimately better. And His ends in a way yours and mine can never end. I don't care how good you are, how cool you are, how much you came through, how much you built yourself out of nothing, how much Jesus Christ saved you, how much faith has made you who you are today. You cannot die for the sins of the world. Only He can. Tell His story instead. And keep your story to yourself. Or write a book. People write books all the time, right? Because that's how we want that Attention. How odd that we think we can lift ourselves up farther than God can lift us. And how we can put ourselves down and be more righteous for it. As if our faith was more commendable because we impose suffering on ourselves. Makes no sense. We have to lose that selfish pride in all of its forms because it's tricky. And the devil is a tricky person. He knows how to trap us. He knows how to defeat us. Look at verses 7 and 10 there. 
with me in 1 Corinthians 4, please. 7 through 10. Let's read that again. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Keep reading. Isn't that exactly what he's saying? These are rich. They have everything. But they do not. He says, you are held in honor there in verse 10. But we in disrepute. Now, Paul is probably being sarcastic in a way. Right? He probably is. And he's he's trying to pull attention there. But he's revealing they have lost the need for God in the center of their lives. Remember the, the Laodiceans in Revelation, and you can flip there real quick. Revelation 3, verses 16 through 17. What did, what did, what was the message to them? You believe you are rich. (laughs) You believe you are great. And he says, when the reality is you are poor, wretched, and blind. Isn't it the Laodiceans that he says, you are lukewarm? Therefore, I will spew you out of my mouth. You're lukewarm. And you're all about yourself one way or the other. And when you're all about yourself, there's no room for anything else. So we must lose our selfish pride. Look back at 1 Corinthians 4 again, please. Verse 11. To the present hour, Paul says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. (coughs) When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage of all things. Now that's... An amazing testimony, isn't it? Let's read Paul's testimony to others. He's not just calling himself scum. He is revealing how he is seen by the world, truthfully. Especially by those who are against Christ. But that view is not reacted to by him in in an ungodly way. It's not reacted to by him in any selfish, prideful way. He's not puffing himself up. He's not, he's not practicing self-deprecation, is he? What is he doing? <coughs> Read there. What happens to him? And let's, let's put ourselves in there. Because we surely can't say realistically we hunger and thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. That's pretty difficult. <coughs> okay, there are those that are. But I don't think any of us can say that. I know I can't. He says, we labor working with our own hands. Do we do that? We certainly better be doing it. And then he says, when reviled, we bless. Now that's your and my common reaction, isn't it? (laughs) Somebody reviles me and I go, God, may God bless you in your life. And somebody reviles me. Somebody calls you a name or says something nasty to you. What do you do? What, what did you just say? Are you talking to me? 
or something like that. Well, let me tell you a little something about you. Isn't that the way we do things? He says, when we're reviled, we bless. That's what it means to be the refuse of all things. That means That's what it means to be the scum of the earth. When we get reviled, we bless. And look at what he says there. When persecuted, we endure. Well, I'm just going to vote that guy out of office. I'm going to go to the steps of the city hall. I'm going to create a riot. He doesn't say that. He says we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Uh, You know, most of you know I teach teenagers. Well, I've been called everything. Okay. And and it's funny because one of the greatest practices for me is when they tell me that terrible thing that I am, that they think I am, I take them out into the hallway and I go, did I deserve to be called that? And for the life of me, thankfully, thank God, <laughs> I have not got back to, well, yeah, that's who you are. I haven't gotten that reaction yet. Okay, maybe. But the beautiful thing is, is that they usually say, well, I'm not mad at you, Mr. Wright. I'm sorry. It was just something. I'm like, okay, okay. That's good. See, that's a hard thing for me to do. That's a hard thing for anybody to do. When slandered in treat, <laughs> that's not my first reaction, by the way. My first reaction is not that. It takes the power of a job that I know I can get fired from if I don't do it to make me stay that way most of the time. With other people, I haven't learned that yet. I will freely admit that to you. I can get mad easy. And I think a lot of us can get mad and not remember to entreat when reviled. But that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's reacting to it the way the Lord would. He has lost that selfish pride in his personal responses to anything negative from the outside, to anything unrighteous, to anything false, is filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God. Everything else is emptied away. Everything else is no good. Look at verses 14 through 21 there, 1 Corinthians 4, please. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your Father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or love and a spirit of gentleness? I prefer the spirit of gentleness, don't you? That is exactly what we read here. And look at what Paul says. He's not a guide or a teacher. Neither is Apollos. Paul is a father. Now, I know there aren't a lot of fathers in here, maybe not a bunch of them. I think there are quite a few, actually, now that I look around, more and more so. But that's what a father does, right? I read this and I'm reminded of my own brother, my own brother James. You know, people make fun of my brother James. He gives away stuff like crazy. He'll buy something expensive and he'll give it to somebody else. <laughs> because they, they, you know, he could be wearing a ring. Oh, yeah, that's a really cool ring. Oh, you like it here? No, no, I don't want it. No, 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 you take it. It's cool. I don't need it. 
And he does it. He cracks me up. Not a lot of people know that about James. He's just goofy. He, he cracks me up. But he just does stuff like that all the time. And I remember one time I told him, you know, you really cracked me up. None of us are like that. What is it about you? And he started to cry. And I said, well, what are you crying about? And he said, you know, when I was a kid, he's the middle child, by the way. None of you have met him. He's the middle child in our family. He says, I used to get picked on a lot. I was the middle child, you know. I used to get picked on a lot. And he goes, there was this one week when all my friends were going to the movies and I had already asked mom and she said we couldn't afford it. I mean, there were five kids in that house at that time. Some more on the way. Some of us weren't even thought of yet. You know, <laughs> but, but by that time, there were kids just filling that house and mom and dad didn't have a lot of money, right? So he goes to mom and he says, mom, I'd really like to go to the movies with my friends. This was a social interaction that he wanted to do so he could get some of that acceptance, you know, from his peers and all that. He wanted to do that. I said, honey, we don't have the money for that. And he's like, oh, maybe dad. And he walks into dad and he goes, dad, my friends are going to the movie this week and I'd really like to. He goes, he looked, he said my dad looked at him, went to the, went to the, to the dresser, pulled out his, his wallet. I hope I can get through this story. Pulls out his wallet and gives him the money in the wallet so he could go to the movies. And he went to the movies. He was so happy. And at the end of that week, mom, he saw mom in dad's bedroom. Mom picked up dad's wallet and stuck in the same amount of money that dad gave to James and put it back on his counter. And he looks at mom and he goes, mom, why are you doing that? And she goes, well, honey, he goes, your dad eats breakfast and dinner here, but he can't really afford, you know, we can't really afford much of a lunch. He, he pays for his weekly lunch with that money. And if I, if he doesn't have that money, he won't have lunch all week. And she walked out and my brother James just, Two plus two equals four. He came to the conclusion. And he was sitting there with tears rolling down. I said, I didn't know that story. And he goes, doesn't matter. I know that story. That was dad's story for me. That was his story that he taught me. That's what fathers do for their children. Paul says, I'm not some teacher, leader, motivational speaker. I'm like a father to you. And that's what a father does. Do you think my dad ever complained about that? No. He didn't want James to ever know that. He found out by accident. (laughs) But it was one of the most profound lessons that he could ever learn. And now he doesn't even know how to hold on to anything. He did just the opposite. He lives in a little apartment, you know, shares it with a friend that he drives trucks with, and not much else. And he'll buy stuff like crazy and give it away. That's just the way he does things. Because that had such one thing, one event, one moment when my dad was the father that James needed to be, even though he was the father James needed to be all his life, is that one moment that he remembers that transformed his way of looking at life forever. Right? And Paul's saying that. This is what this is all about. When people tell me, you know, because my brother James has a bad temper, and he's grouchy. (laughs) How do you love James so much? Oh, let me tell you the story. Now that's, it's incredible. He would never tell the story of himself. But I don't mind telling <laughs> But that's the thing. This is the idea here that, that Paul is immersing himself into. And he's telling them, I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you I'm garbage, I'm refuse. 
which according to, to commentators who study the words, they say that, have you ever fried anything in an iron pan and all the gunk that's at the end when you get the iron pan and you scrape all that out and you throw it in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the, in the trash? That's what scum is here, basically. And you might see it as something in your bathtub after you take a bath or something. But th- for them, this was the leftovers that cannot be eaten. They're, yeah. they're, they're not palpable. You know, to, you can't taste them very well. And he says, I'm not telling you this to shame you, but to give you a model to emulate. And see, my dad had seven sons. And the way I look, six sons, one daughter, sorry. Sis feels like a brother more than she does a sister. Poor thing. (laughs) Anyway, we had six boys and one girl. Okay. I have five brothers. There's six of us boys. And they're not a one of us like Jim. Not a one of us. Oh yeah, the anger's still there. The grouchiness. You know, we got that. I'm not talking about that. There's not one of us like him that way. I don't think. I don't think there is. And see, that's the thing. We all resisted our father. To a point. Hopefully... I won't do that anymore. But the question is, are we resisting our godly Father, our Father in Heaven, our Creator, our Savior, our Provider? Are we resisting Him? That's the greater question. The greater question is, are we resisting Him? Because, oh, how we resist these truths. The Corinthians were resisting it, and we often resist it. And it just shows how needful we are of godly mindsets. And how easy it is to replace that with that drum major instinct kind of junk. How much easier it is to do that. But Paul calls for them as he does over and again. Look again in verse 16 there. I urge you, be imitators of me. You can jump forward a little bit. It says the same thing uh, in uh, chapter 11. Um, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. He's not saying hold me up. <laughs> He's not saying make me your example. He's saying imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Brethren and friends, this morning we need to ask ourselves and be dreadfully honest. Are we resisting that? If you are, stop. It's time to change that, to imitate the Lord. If you haven't been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, you must be. If you are are baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins and you have resisted your Father, stop. Turn around. Repent. Resist Him no longer. Whatever your need, if it is any at all, please, let it be known to these good people here. We will pray for you. We will encourage you. We will support you. Whatever you need, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.